Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. License and registration, please. Come on, man. This is a desolate, waterless, post-apocalyptic landscape in which the most basic codes of society have broken down and the rule of law has been replaced by, you know, speed and violence. Nobody carries paperwork anymore. License and registration, please. Have you looked around you? It's all freaks and warlords in muscle cars. It's a reversion to petrofeudalism that... Never mind. Here they are. So you are this Imperator Furiosa, Yep. but this 18-wheeler hot rod is registered to a Mr. Immorten Joe. Mm-hmm. So... Can we speed this up? I'm in a hurry. I noticed. Do you know how fast you were going? As fast as I could. Did you see the people chasing me? And you were shooting guns out of both windows. That's distracted driving. We're in the middle of a big initiative. Hands-free is not risk-free. Oh, shut up. You drive, you text... You pay. I wasn't texting. I was shooting. Uh, it's the same thing. Look, just give me the ticket, all right? I can make it a warning on failure to obey the posted limit. Because the only thing posted are human skulls. Do whatever you want. Can I borrow your gun for a second? Oh, sure. Here. That was some kind of blood-seeking mutant. Look, this might take a while. Today, the nose tackles Mad Max Fury Road. And now he stars in a spin-off, Neurotic Morty. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, for some people, including it turns out Carolyn Payne, uh, Mad Max is just too, uh, it's too much. But Neurotic Morty, things go a little slower. Uh, and uh, I think I think you'll enjoy it more. So we are going to be talking about uh, Mad Max, Fury Road, and, and sort of, I think, sort of letting some tentacles kind of spill out from there. Into kind of into other topics uh, or other areas of ageism and sexism and patriarchy and stuff, uh, all the stuff we like to talk about on the nose. Tanisha Dugat is with us. She's uh, with Heartbeat Ensemble, but she's also uh, a millennial hyphenate. She says a <laughs> freelancing actor, producer, writer, bon vivant. Carolyn Payne with us is with us. She invented millennial hyphenate. <laughs> she, she's an actress, comedian, writer, dancer, dancer Brasario, and over the last forty-eight hours. Uh, music video badass performer <laughs> uh, and uh, J- here with us uh, a, a man really you know just no real hyphens he's James Hanley he is uh, one of the founders of and, and leaders of Trinity Cine Studio so um, back in 1979, when Mad- the first Mad Max movie premiered, we had no name for a post-apocalyptic road film in which heavily armed hot rodders and bikers endlessly traded gunfire. Today, of course, we call it Texas. Uh, but uh, George Miller, the man who invented it all, put the franchise on ice for 30 years while he made Happy Feed and Babe. And now he's back with a fourth installment, minus Mel Gibson and plus many, many ladies, including the granddaughter of Elvis Presley and the daughter of Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet, because how are you going to perpetuate humanity without uh, swimsuit models? Um, 
But the movie also has a lot to say, even though hardly anybody says anything. And I mean the table read probably took less than five minutes. There's not a lot of dialogue here. Uh, but it has a lot to say about gender and age and heirloom seeds. Uh, A.O. Scott can stand in for a choir of rapturous critics when he says Mad Max Fury Road, like its namesake, is both humble and indomitable. It isn't about heroism in the conventional superpowered sense. It's about revolution. So there's, a, there's been just a gigantic chorus of critics really loving this movie. A few dissenters do, as there will be. Um, so And people are calling it a masterpiece. People are calling it a feminist masterpiece. People are calling it other kinds of masterpieces. So uh, we're going to try to work through all of this. Um, well, James, is it a masterpiece? You get to decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was just thinking just before this, uh, uh, thinking about when we first showed the original Mad Max, when it was a, a cult film, kind of an art film, you know, that we played at midnight. And uh, it didn't it didn't play the major theaters until later on. It, it was a very different thing. Um, this arrives in a very different form. And I don't know. I, I, I can't join in the great praise of it for the reasons many of the critics are saying. To me, it's an action movie that's trying to appease a lot of people. Um, George Miller has a reputation, of course, that uh, and, and there's content in the film. There is real content, and I think it's potentially actually very radical content, but it doesn't seem to really run with it. And it also not coincidentally, sort of drowns it out in sheer constant turmoil and noise, and which is the sort of expectation of the franchise kind of thing. So I, I have a feeling it's a film that sort of, sort of succeeds, but in spite of itself, and it doesn't really have the kind of clarity that it could have had about the women in the movie, for example. I mean, I think there are very mixed messages about the women in the movie for, that, that, you know, we can get into that, the complexity of that. But um, it seems that, uh, you know, the committee of investors all wanted their sort of insurance that, okay, this wasn't going to turn off the boy destruction crowd. It was also going to maybe hold on to their girlfriends and maybe we'll get the lesbians too. And, you know, it sort of <laughs> has this kind of like calculated quality about it. Oh, maybe we'll get the lesbians too. I've I've been at those meetings so many times. Um, so, Tanisha, I'm just going to let you guys kind of react to each other a little bit rather than try to orchestrate this conversation. Tanisha, I, I guess, you know the thing that is interesting to me on your point about sort of trying to please a lot of different stakeholders is that I didn't realize like the artistic team behind it until I watched the credits roll, and I think part of yeah. the sort of confused messaging when it comes to the feminist agenda in this film is that it is all produced and created by men. Yes. And there didn't seem to be, with the exception of maybe e- Charlize. Eve Ensler was an advisor on Craig. it. Craig! <laughs> yeah. Eve Ensler in here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. That I, was a desperate crowd. I think that's crap. what it was. But <laughs> no, I think that's exactly what it was because yeah. I think they sort of probably realized maybe during the table read as they're reading, <laughs> reading all of this action, like, Hmm, looking around this table. Where are the ladies? Yeah, and Charlize is like, well, as the one woman here with a voice. So they went for the ultimate in feminism. There's there's also another thing that's kind of important about the end of the movie is that if, you know, nobody, me, I'm the only person in the theater, right, still watching the credits right Right. through to the end. Everybody else has left. But even the names of the characters... Yes, that come on at the end of the movie. Most people miss that. Mm-hmm. They've gone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by the time that comes on. I honestly didn't even catch names of some of the main characters. I had them super confused. I yes, left this yeah. movie with a headache. I felt like I had been at a metal rock concert and got hit by a 
bus and <laughs> several of those vehicles that ran through there. I think it's so brave that you saw it in 3D, Tanisha. <laughs> I could not have. It was it was just awful enough in 2D for me to experience this kind of uh, chaos. It does make me wonder, though, like I've heard inklings of what kind of music they play during war. And I have to say the yeah. dude on the electric guitar, the he flaming electric favorite. guitar. Yeah. I was like that and the timpanis. Like that's the way if I'm going to war, I'd like to go. We should say that uh, – and actually, before, right before the show started, Greg Hill, our tweet master, said, should I be warning people about spoilers? Mm. And I feel like there are – it doesn't really – it's not that kind of movie, no, really. I don't think it really no. – really, it's no. not like Sixth Sense or something. You know, there isn't some big reveal at some point. Uh, but so anyway, just to sort of explain, as the uh, forces of chaos and evil uh, roar into battle, one of the things they do have is a guy playing an electric guitar kind of on the front of some big semi or something <laughs> like that. Um, and I mean, they're just – you know, it takes all of the – gothic qualities of I mean I, I think one thing about the Mad Max movies is so you, the first one was this very low budget you know late night art film and then the Road Warrior came along and it really it, it sort of kicked up the production values quite a bit and kind of went into a different place and it really I do think that that's still a pretty good movie and, and a sort of you know and Mel Gibson sort of embodying this kind of Gary Cooper type loner and, and you know one thing that George uh, Miller seems to do very well is see into the future I mean this is sort of like a peak oil type movie yeah. that was made in the early 1980s I remember to Carolyn's point, getting in my car, and it kind of happened to me again this time, getting into my car in 1982 or whatever year that was, uh, right after seeing The Road Warrior. It was still broad daylight, and I, and I think I saw it up uh, the now defunct East Hartford uh, uh, multiplex. And I just started like driving over curbs and stuff like that. I just had, I mean, not without really doing that consciously. I just had, I just had inherited this idea that, you know, you really shouldn't do anything except drive in a straight line no matter what's in front of you. Um, and so I really, I just broke like eight different traffic laws and almost knocked over a stop sign in the first 60 seconds of operating my car. And I kind of felt that way this time too. Maybe that's why I've been driving the way I've been yeah. driving the past 48 hours. That's mad it, it, it's interesting about The Road Warrior because The Road Warrior came at a time really when this whole idea of a movie being a product was just starting to develop. <clears throat> and this uh, – The Road Warrior itself was very influential in terms of you know like taking on – um, that kind of uh, action movie that was chaotic, you know, and had all of these things like, and it was transgressive. The idea of, you know, like you could you could do these things, and 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 it it had a sort of vaguely threatening quality, but it didn't have the kind of calculated quality that movies have now. Movies of that kind. And I think this is a product of that kind of calculating quality of investors and returns and stuff like that. But there are all kinds of themes that are that that are there that actually you can sort of tease out of it. Like I think there's a really fascinating thing in Australia about the fact that uh, Australia has been celebrating the sort of nobility of Gallipoli and the Australian soldiers at Gallipoli and sort of the general lie of war and the nobility of war and fighting the good fight and all the rest of it. And then along comes this movie, which is like, like uh, you know, the 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 idea of the rock guitarist on the front of this vehicle, you know, coursing through this hideous landscape. It's Australia's worst nightmare of its world image. Well, and there are these 
one of the big sort of uh, – by the way, if you want to chime in, if you've seen the movie or you're for some interesting reason refusing to see the movie, 860-275-7266. Do not call in with uninteresting reasons for refu- refusing to see the movie. 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at WNPR Colin. Um, so, yeah, I mean one of the things that's in this movie, there is this incredible multitude of these things called war boys, which are these pale and powdered, slightly mutant-looking, sunken-eyed uh, – Sort of, I don't know. They're they're sort of. They seem more like boys than than like men. And and one of the things, then they believe in this real Valhalla, Valhalla mythology that if they die in the glory of battle, great things are going to happen to them. And then one of these bizarre George Miller Gothic touches is if they think that's about to happen, yeah, they always have at hand a can of silver spray paint which they spray around their mouths, which I don't think was done in Gallipoli. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just obviously we we so we need to sort of dig into that feminist question. So a couple of things have happened. Some people have really kind of embraced this as kind of a, an interesting feminist progression argument. Uh, Charlize Theron's character is just indisputably a much bigger character than the title character in this movie. And then there are other uh, female characters whose who's actual value as feminist icons we can probably debate here. Uh, but so some people really embraced it. And then there turns out to be something called the manosphere. Did you know there was something called the manosphere? I learned that in, in reading up about this movie. In, in, and in the, in the manosphere. Are you still a part oh, of the manosphere? Yeah. In the, the manosphere. No, we are not. We're, we're standing at the edges of the gynosphere, you know, <laughs> waving to you. Um, but in the manosphere, they're just not at all happy about this. And they feel like the whole thing has been sort of hijacked uh, in a very unfortunate way. And I don't know. I mean, they're probably just kind of a little weird, freaky sideshow. But I don't know, Carolyn, does this say – does this film make a feminist statement? Is, is it plausibly some kind of feminist masterpiece? I kept hearing about these – I was reading online before we saw the movie. I was getting kind of excited to see it just because there was this manosphere and everyone saying, you know, oh my gosh, it's this raging feminist, the feminist film of this time. And it was you – know, people – men were mad about it. And so when I – was going into the movie, I thought that Mad Max was going to be this, like, sad little man who was, you know, shaking in a corner while Charlize Theron's character is just, like, kicking ass and, you know. <laughs> that's, that's neurotic Morty that you're thinking about. That's, that's, that's the right, film I'm yeah. <laughs> so I'm there now. But I thought that's what I was going to be seeing. Um, but it just wasn't the case. They were – they you know, she is a strong female character, but he is a strong male character, and they are – they're equals. Um, so – I didn't see it as some great, you know, feminist uh, propaganda that that is out there. I, I think there have been other action female heroes that can be celebrated more than, than this character. It's interesting. I brought up on a time I was on the nose before this campaign called He for She. And that really came up for me a lot in watching this movie because, like you said, they are equals. I mean, he speaks far less and that's not saying much in this movie. Men but speak less than women anyway. This is all. Maybe, that was the point he was making. Maybe. But I think. <laughs> but I do think that this sort of teamwork between the sexes was an important message, and and him allowing her to sort of 
take the gun, so to speak, and, yeah, and, I think and literally. I think that's very important in the movie, actually. I think that's something that comes through in spite of all the noise and mayhem and all of the sort of confusing stuff. That is a remarkable thing. And there's another remarkable aspect of Charlize Theron's character is that she's an amputee. And and mm-hmm. there's no attention paid to that. It's just sort of there that, that she is And actually, I liked that. I did too. I love because that. In my personal history, yeah. I was like, yes, that is exactly. the kind and, of and, image I want to see. I thought yeah. one of the right. best moments is when she goes to shoot the gun and she uses his shoulder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that she, after exactly. he misses. Right. After right. he misses alert. twice, she's like, let me handle <laughs> right. this. Yeah. And talk. <laughs> And and Tom Hardy is is a kind of like he's a different kind of person really for this film in that he gets that he mm-hmm. gets that cooperation he gets that mm-hmm. what's what's going on there and the dynamic that if if there's anything that came out of the movie that really riveted me at times was the interplay between them. There's something mm-hmm. about uh, when she goes to the Vol. Vuvulini. The Vuvulini. Yeah. Vuvulini. I can't wait to get to the Vuvulini. Sorry. <laughs> but the, you know, the, they're, they're this gang of older, if that's the PC way of talking about these women, this gang of amazing older women who raised her, basically. And she brings this man and they go, who is he? What is he? And, and what she says to them still, I think about. She goes, he's reliable. Yes. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, that shouldn't feel revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, but that right. as yes. the... Yeah. Thing that totally. is the the best feature of this man is that he's reliable. Yeah. Spoke so yeah. much to me. Right. I I think you're right. I mean, I, I I saw this movie as I I did I sort of saw the kind of uh, as a as kind of a kind of mythic statement about women. It may be a very unsuccessful mythic statement about women, but I, I kind of saw it that way. And it maybe some of it may have to do with my chronological placement in a generation of people. There was a period of time. I think it probably was. It's all a blur now, but let's say it was in the 1980s um, when a whole bunch of women were reading this book called The Great Cosmic Mother and everybody was sort of Wiccan curious, you know. Everybody was sort of looking at all, at all this kind of imagery. And, and so you heard a lot about these, the, these three uh, female archetypes that are prominent within Wiccan uh, dialogues and stuff like that, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And I saw that very much in this movie. I mean, first of all, what we, we, was, there are no spoilers. So basically the, the, the precious cargo in this movie uh, it was sort of supposedly oil or gasoline in the Road Warrior. And this time it is what are called breeders, which are these – and they really do <laughs> – mm-hmm. they're sort of absurdly hot women. One of them really is. That was that was yeah. a serious problem. Right. I mean yeah. serious Did they have problem. to be right. wearing their nightgowns? Right. I mean yeah. it's like – In the, battle. The yeah. costuming was way yeah. In all there. white when everybody else is yeah. brown. That was like back, back <laughs> to that investors conference. Everyone you know? was so okay. dirty and they were all pristine and showered right. with their hair right. done. Yeah. Yeah. It just yeah. didn't matter. One of them like Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is that about? As the, <laughs> you as can our, have the amputee, but you, you're going to have to have the nightgowns too. <laughs> exactly. our, as our friends over on Culture, Slate Culture Gabfest said they discussed it this week. Uh, I think it was Dana Stevens who, who said so. You know, there's this ragtag les miserables mob of humanity <laughs> that's stuck back at this place called the Citadel where water is doled out in this very haphazard and unhappy way and they're completely sick and miserable and dirty and undernourished. But the only people really worth saving are those Sports Illustrated swimsuit models. You know, those, those are the people who really have to be saved. But anyway, but they, I think they are sort of – so the, the whole notion 
notion of them is that they are breeders. They are receptacles for the seed of this dreadful, horrible. He's sort of like if Darth Vader really let himself go and didn't have good <laughs> medical care. You know, I mean, he's like worse than he's good. You know, when Darth Vader's helmet comes off and he's all kind of squishy and pale yeah. and stuff like that. That's like Mortan Joe's whole body is sort of like that. And he's the most grotesque. Uh, thing imaginable, but somehow or other and they breathing have to, problems too. And breathing <laughs> problems, and so but they they have to uh, absorb his seed somehow and perpetuate the human race. And so the whole idea is to get them out of this. And so the person trying to get them out of this is this kind of. I mean, she, she's not exactly a mother figure, but she's she is a mother figure to them, I think, and that's the Charlize Theron character. And then they go out into the desert, and there's this kind of you know sleeping gypsy type look to this you know beautiful but incredibly stark and barren uh, desert uh, where they come upon this group of uh, women named the Vuvuliti, and they are crones. You know, I got in trouble in my own house for saying that, but I mean it in a good way. That <laughs> the notion within the that whole Wiccan dialogue was that you know this is a different kind of power, right? It's the power of older women. The wise women. The wise women. Yeah. Yeah. And who are wise warrior women in this case, yes. too. I yeah. mean, you know. We get into our age thing. <laughs> Where you go, yes. Yeah. They, carry, they right. carry the knowledge. They carry the seeds of the future. I mean, right. it's, it's an, important, an important figure. And I think that's probably one another one of those sort of main features that made people go, yes, this is a feminist film. Well, that, because how often do you see that? It, it's true. And that's what bothered me about the film in the way that it didn't go anywhere with that. Mm-hmm. And that is really, I mean, it really is radical thinking to actually talk about the sort of the stored knowledge and, and the idea that these women would be the guides to something different. And the, the movie sort of almost gets there, but then dissolves into a very sort of conventional way of resolving it with yet more mayhem. And it's something that you sort of feel that maybe had this been made a few years ago where it didn't have the pressure to be a major movie, in quotes, that maybe you could have done something with that. That's where my disappointment, I think, And maybe if they had more women on the creative production side. Absolutely. Because I don't think Eve Ensler can say, as a crone perhaps herself, Mm, that (laughs) These women need more of a say right. in a script that's probably ten pages. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I think if they would have extended, yeah, I think if they would have incorporated some dialogue in this film, there's a lot they could have yes, done. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think that that's where it it fell short yeah. that there weren't that they didn't allow things to develop yeah. more. Well, but this I sense is, this, this thing in the air that mentorship, as important as it is, is a dangerous thing. The idea yeah, of passing yeah. ideas down from one generation to the next in a real tangible way. Mm. I I get this feeling in the atmosphere that that's not what we want from our society. When I hear the word mentor, I think of that Seinfeld episode where Jerry is dating the woman who has a a mentor. She's the mentee. And then... Uh, and then somehow she finds out that the he finds out that the mentor is dating Kenny Banya, his mm-hmm. his stand up comic nemesis, who is just awful. So <laughs> I don't. The word mentor just for some reason that episode is always what pops into my mind <laughs> whenever you, whenever someone talks about mentoring. I think of that, and I I think that there is kind of there is this this part of people that like you know if somebody's like oh I'm going to mentor you it's 
there's well, something. Isn't that, isn't that the essence of how the term mentor has been sort of commodified like exactly. that and turned into something different? If you think about things like in ancient societies of storytelling, for example, um, the, of, of a griot in Africa or a, 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 any kind of opportunity where an older person can tell stories to children or to young people and actually see that as an important part of their education, just as important as other aspects. And then the these characters, these, these uh, whatever they are called, these older people in the society, and in particular, the older women characters in, in Mad Max, in Fury Road, they could have been very significant in getting that across as not that commodity, exactly. not that sort of cheap <laughs> exactly. you yeah. know, mentor, the idea of mentor, that this could actually be something that actually benefits people, that people who are trying to learn how to do things actually can see that you, one of the particular things that could have been brought out in this movie is to be able to see the larger issue and not the immediate issue, which is a thing that young people have a great deal of difficulty seeing. Um, the, okay, you go ahead. I was going to say quickly, and the movie ends right before how you rebuild the world begins. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> and that's when you need right. those women in <laughs> right. those stories. Exactly, exactly right. right. Um, yep. uh, we're going to continue this conversation, maybe even look at some ways in which uh, there are sort of uncanny and eerie parallels uh, out there in the real world. We'd love to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. We'll take a break. We'll be back. All right. We're going to just keep having this conversation. There's a lot, a lot of different places we can go here. We, we're starting out with Mad Max uh, Fury Road, but there, we'll go many places from there. Hope you come with us. Our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I do think in this movie, just to sort of I want to stick up for the crones just a little bit more and say – or the Vuvalini or whatever we're going to call them. I mean I think they're really important in this movie too because you know, quite frequently in movies when – if you're looking at that sort of third stage of womanhood, it's like Blythe Danner or something. you know. Whereas I mean these women, they're, 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 they're leathery. They're wizened and they're very tough. They're kick-ass. Uh, they, there's an implication. I mean this movie implies so much more than it states and I'm sort of OK with that. But uh, there's an implication that, well, they've lived their lives and if they have to take a bullet to keep things going, you know, that's the, that's, that's just kind of the way it's going to be. Um, and the other thing that they're doing that's very interesting to me, and you were, we were talking during the break about there's a lot of playing around with very elemental things, including breast milk. And we, we can either talk about that or not talk about that. But, um, but the other thing is seeds, you know, seeds are like this very big deal, you know, because there's nothing growing really, you know, and they're trying to grow some stuff and they <laughs> like that all important water thing, uh, and, and 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 earth, yeah. I just and, and and there's this kind of this sense anyway that that's a really big thing. It, it's odd because I just happened to catch the first couple of episodes um, last week of um, the Last Man on Earth, this Will Forte comedy that's on right now. And and one of the thing that's things that goes on very early in the comedy is that Kristen Schaal, who turns out to be the last one on Earth, she really wants to grow like heirloom tomatoes and stuff. That's really, really I mean. <laughs> the, and it, they they live in a similarly kind of blasted landscape, except that everything's still sort of there. So you can go into Costco and get eighty four cans of tomatoes. <laughs> I mean, you, you will you won't die for lack of tomatoes. But she really wants to grow heirloom tomatoes. She wants water piped down for it and everything. There, I think that is tapping into some of our kind of climate change anxieties, and I think that plays out in the movie too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you want to talk about breast milk? 
We could talk about breast milk. No, I talk yeah. about breast milk all the time. <laughs> That's true. It's kind of, a, kind of a busman's holiday for you. Uh, well, I, do, I, I do think it's one of those things, though, again, that, um, you know, that the absence of women in central roles as scriptwriters and producers and – well, there are actually producers there are, but particularly scriptwriters, you know, <clears throat> could actually make the breast milk part that appears in this movie actually be something that means something rather than kind of a joke that, you know, ew, sort of, you know, and like... Offensive. And, and offensive. And offensive. I mean, exactly. the women who are right. the feeders are predominantly his brown, Hispanic yes, or black. Exactly. They're humongous. And yeah. something about that... I felt really all, uncomfortable all with sorts that. Of, <laughs> yes, all sorts of aren't, slightly aren't, uncomfortable Aren't we meant there. to be offend, offended by that? I mean, to me, that was, uh, you know, back to sort of, uh, to James's point about sort of Australian colonialism and stuff like that. I thought that was Miller maybe throwing stuff in their face, too. Mm. That, that's still, you know, that, that looked like sort of the conventional model of wet nurse. And right, yet I know? feel like we're not there yet. Uh, yeah, I think that could... <laughs> that, like, Having that. Yeah. I think that could be true if it had been worked out in the right. script mm-hmm. and it had actually been part it, of the story because in using them in, as devices, you could see that somebody like George Miller might well be throwing it in the face of, right. of, of Australian culture doing that. But you have to think of things like, for instance, the, 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 the insertion of the thing about breast milk also comes in the context of women being harassed because they're actually feeding babies in public. Right. And, you know, the whole idea that somehow breast milk is icky, that that, that could be made into a theme in a movie like that to do that is sort of like that kind of shoots in the foot the idea that mm-hmm. you're actually making a serious comment about these big earth mother you know mm-hmm. nurturers in the film right. and it, it's sort of muddled in that way I think that 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 doesn't come out clearly. The whole film I just felt was muddled. Like it had all these concepts like where it was trying to make so many different statements about so many different issues mm-hmm. whether it you know be Australian culture inherited feminism whatever they are trying whatever they were trying to go for it's like they get you almost there but then mm-hmm. not take you somewhere with it. So for me I I left with I had to go home and I you know just researching it and trying yeah, to yeah. put together and figure out how I felt about it and process it. And you may, that makes you think that probably most people are not going to do that when right. they see the movie. And so they're actually well, taking a yeah, different they, message away from the movie. They're just and that's what like I meant by those we're explosions were yeah. really cool. Yeah, exactly. yeah, is that we're not there yet, yeah. that I don't think we're ready for – I don't think we An understand irony. film that irony. is also going into in-depth issues. Right. Well, I think we better be ready for it because, I mean, the other thing that fascinates me about this is that – um, and and uh, I did sort of send this around earlier this week. But, OK, so, you know, when the first Mad Max movies came out, they were about these marauding bands of bikers and highly motorized uh, thugs who were racing around terrorizing people uh, and, and ruling a landscape through force and speed and violence. Um, and so so that was the that was in the 1980s. These movies came out then in the 1990s. Uh, and I did an article about this and I interviewed James for it. This is the thing that kills me. Around 1992, uh, around the time the collapse of Somalia so that you had the Saeed and Idid factions and, and the, sort of the mess that America got uh, involved in in a much more direct way after having supported various satellite factions and monkeyed around in the past with the polity of Somalia. So all the journalists were saying it looked like Mad Max. They, 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 all the TV journalists and the print journalists, they go to Somalia and say, well, it looks like Mad, it looks like the road warrior here. It looks like Mad Max. And James at the time said, isn't that the final insult to sort of, you know, after having been directly involved with causing this situation, then show up and go, wow, it looks like this movie we have back home. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, and, but now, of course, 
it, it, it's not Somalia. It's here, right? right? Exactly. I mean, Mad Max is like right at our – well past our shores. It, today, there's a town in Texas that's calling for all kinds of help because they think that those two gangs – it's called Mingus, Texas. They think the Cossacks and, who, and whoever the other ones are are going to show up and shoot there, you know? <laughs> and I mean, it just isn't really very different, is it? No. No, no and it, it has some of the same elements. I mean, the staff, uh, the, the women who are the servers at Twin Peaks, the restaurant where the mayhem took place in Waco, they're, 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 they're very scantily dressed. It's like, you know, the, the, the whole... Breeders. The breeders. The breeders, exactly. The wives, right. as they yeah. say. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's very... Uh, it, and, and the remarkable thing is here that you're talking about, like, this place where it took place is like a big shopping mall area. You know, all the big retailers are there, right? And then this is like uh, a, a, a scene from <laughs> a Mad Max type of setup is actually taking place in the midst of all of this, this sort of yeah, retail mecca. Yeah, it's not mecca. like out in Texas, like on, on a desert that would look in your mind no, like Mad Max. Exactly. No, it's in a... <laughs> and, and, and now, of course, the story is being told about how, oh, these weren't really marauding bikers. You know, we're getting these human stories about how, oh, they were, you know, they were titled veterans, you know, with medals and stuff like this. And so, okay, so what exactly happened here then? I it's can't. Like... <laughs> I can't with all of that. <laughs> all right. wanna... We know what those bikers look like. And so that's where that whole element comes from. I can't. I want to grab a call here from Paul, our number 860 Five seven two six six. Paul, checking in from Hartford. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. You're on the air. I had a quick comment around um, the movie being feminist um, that was discussed earlier. I think the definition of feminism that I grew up with was um, equality between the genders. So I think in that basic definition, I thought the movie was feminist and depicted that really strong male and female characters uh, very well. I, you know, I want I. I have a question about that. I don't, it's not a comment. It's a question. And it's, this came up for me when the movie Thelma and Louise came out. And, I, and it certainly was looked at kind of that way, right? And I sort of thought, well, is that feminism and is that equality? I mean, they're kind of out of control and they're going to die at the end. And it's just, you know, they're, they're sort of jerks the way male action figure action heroes are often jerks. I mean, is that really equality? Is that I mean, I, I like the equality in this movie probably a little bit better than I like that. But it does raise the question, like, what is equality? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody want that one? Well, I think I think that when you get into that situation, um, you have to look at what are the characters in the movie and what is their real sort of reason for being there. And this goes back to the thing that I felt about the the, the old women at the end of the movie, which was such a provocative and radical idea as to what their role was and where they were going to go. It's like the scriptwriters didn't have an idea for that. And so it really petered out at the end and so didn't really uh, address these issues of sort of equality in quotes. I mean you can say – you could populate a movie e- evenly with male and female characters and actors and play it out. But if you don't have any ideas that actually say what's going on here, they're just really characters in, a, in, in what in a Mad Max Fury Road contains a lot of mayhem. What one of the point were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, and it's it's kind of tough because I think about the end of the movie and the and the way in which it ends, and that could be perceived, I guess, as a feminist ending or a a, a way of equal equal partnership and and gender roles. But I also think about like like you said, this sort of character break outbreak or character breakdown, yeah. and Max is a lone wolf, yeah. and so it's not a decision, and I guess that's sort of 
where my brain goes, I don't know if we're talking about really equality because he wasn't saying mm-hmm. I seed this or I'm giving you this. This is sort of like, eh, and I'm off to my, like this is what I, what I do as a lone ranger. I'm not making a Well, it, it goes to the heart of what equality really is. Right. Equality is actually having equal power. Right. And if you don't have equal power, you can be there, but you're not really, you're not expressing equality. And, and I feel like women, if he stayed. The wives like that's where the lack of a that's where it lost its like feminist right. edge for me. Well, yeah. Carolyn, I thought one interesting point that you made in our mini emails this week was that um, you know almost lost in the shuffle of this long conversation that's been going on online and in various critical uh, columns uh, about feminist questions and feminist issues in Mad Max Fury Road is that Mad Max Fury Road was eclipsed at the box office by Pitch Perfect Two, uh, <laughs> which really is sort of the work I think of a woman auteur, Elizabeth Banks, and and is. It, it manages to be, first of all, this incredible movie franchise, apparently, without having to traffic in any of the stuff that we're talking about right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do have to admit that I willingly saw Pitch Perfect 2 last weekend. I went to see Mad Max for this. Um, per, Pitch Perfect 2, I think, I don't think like that that's, you know, some great feminist opus either, even though <laughs> It was written by a woman, and it, it is it the you know predominantly female characters and production team, the production team, exactly. All female. Yeah, um, I mean it, it's it's great. I will say that I do think if I was going to tell someone to go see a movie between these two, I'd say go see Pitch Perfect Two. <laughs> it's Aka amazing, <laughs> amazing. Pitch Perfect Two will be watched in my house it's like seventeen times once it's available on video. Yeah, what were you going to say? I, I think it's kind of interesting industry wise too that uh, you know that. There are not uh, at this time of year when the big tent poles are coming out and the big summer plans are being announced for what's coming next. That there are not many films that actually appeal to that audience, not just women, but but I think men who appreciate a good story that's told by women, and and that the nature of Pitch Perfect being a success like that and taking off, I think is a I see that as a really hopeful sign that it's a symbolic thing that hey it it knocked into number one position and it's an indication that a lot of people did go to see it. I mean the money was very good. It was it wasn't just that you know often in the industry when a, when a, uh, a a film like that comes along, somebody in the industry will say, "Oh well, uh, you know, if the rest of the fi- all the other movies were dying, and so this one bubbled to the top." Right. But they can't say that about this, and this is different. Yeah, this I is- hate going to the movies. It's actually one of my least favorite activities. I have several fears <laughs> involving going to the movies, including like, "Oh my gosh, what happens if I have to go to the bathroom and I miss the most important part?" <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, I, you know, all sorts of all sorts of weird movie phobias that I deal with. But it, again, that being said, I saw the previews for Pitch Perfect 2. I like the first one. And I was like, you know what? I really want to see that movie yeah, this weekend. Yeah. I mean, it made the yeah. money. And so that is awesome for yeah. female producers and right. female directors. It's, it, it is cute beyond belief. And I have a really, that's where I get sort of like tight in my chest about it. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like this idea that women can do well making cute movies is can be difficult when you want to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is, and not that Pitch Perfect doesn't tell a story. I loved the first one too, well, and I'll wait for it to come out 
on DVD or on demand to see the next one. But I, I it, it worries me because I know that we, as an industry, we get into uh, this place where we go, okay, well, that formula worked for right. a group of women, yes, and yes. therefore every female-driven film must be cute in this way. And no, it's called in the, the industry. With Mad Max, it could have been. <laughs> it could have been called uh, Furiosa. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. It and, really. And, but I think that was uh, James the James's imaginary meeting that was rejected instantly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and but you know, just to your point about Pitch Perfect, and I think you were the one who pointed this out as we were emailing back and forth. That you know, as self-actualizing as Pitch Perfect is, Rebel Wilson apparently still has to lie about her age. She's thir- she's been telling people yeah. she's twenty nine and so she got caught out being thirty five. Right? Which I don't yeah. know how she thought she could get away with that in this because day and everybody age. does. Right. I mean, I get it. Like if somebody asked me how old I am, I'm probably going to lie. Yeah, totally <laughs> twenty two. Um, but I, and then uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. It just came out yesterday that she is thirty seven and was told she's too old to play opposite a fifty five year old man to play his love interest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can. It's, it's but really... Charlize Theron is. Uh, she is. You know, nearly forty. I and she could be older than that, as you pointed out. And she, but she. So she's. You know, still she's still strong enough to go and you know wield weapons and and be real but strong. But, but that's different she can't than be a that's, love interest. That's exactly. Right, she's that's different. She's, she's no arc- longer yeah. To refer to that Amy Schumer the video, Amy she's Schumer. no longer blankable. Right? right. She's right. she's yeah. bankable maybe, but she's right. not blankable. And she's right. she's an archetype in the way that she's portrayed in those parts. And I th- I saw a very interesting uh, contrast in the movie we're showing at Cine Studio, The Clouds of Sils Maria. Um, Juliette Binoche is an actress who's you know throughout her career she's been aging on screen. And her parts reveal that she is clearly happy in her skin. I mean, I think that Charlize Theron is a person who could probably play some really interesting, serious roles. But she is now in a place, I think, where that kind of appearance that she has, sort of ageless appearance, if you like, in uh, Mad Max, it's sort of like accommodating that ageism that exists in Hollywood and amongst agents, you know, about, you know, well, whether you can play this part because you're too old to play against this matinee idol or something like that. And I think the distinction between Hollywood... Also, French French women get a pass on this. Well, that's what I'm going to say. I think there's a distinction between Hollywood and Paris. I mean, Meryl Streep is is coming out with a a film where she's playing a rock star. I think that is in in opposition to Binoche and, and the way in which she has yeah. been able to age on, on I screen. I think that it's not we are getting Hollywood a lot thing. better about the kind of roles, and I think women are creating them for themselves, uh, like the Lily Tomlin right. and uh, yes, Jane, and Fonda Jane Fonda yeah. show on Netflix. Well, both of them have money. That's why. Exactly. Well, they get yeah. to control And they've been the around forever yeah. to right. use the mentor right. <laughs> phrase exactly. again. They, that, that they, is the key. They're tried and true. Yeah, exactly. And they, it, But the real issue is having the money to put in to, to actually control what happens. And then you can see the, the, the women hired as scriptwriters, for example. And no disrespect to Netflix, but Netflix is the place like HBO and Showtime used to be where those kinds of projects can get made. This yeah. isn't CBS. This isn't right. you know, exactly, one of the big four. Exactly, but we're getting there. Um, I do want to say sort of the, the final frontier. I don't think we really have a lot of time left to, to discuss it. But even if we begin to solve some of these problems on screen, the final frontier turns out to be merchandise. Deborah Timms, one of our interns, uh, pointed this out to me that, uh, that there's a huge controversy going on because as toys come out of the Avenger um, franchise, um, they, they actually take the scene 
that is played by Scarlett Johansson's character, Black Widow, and and sort of remake the toys so that um, so that they are ridden or used by either Captain America or Iron Man. The, the theory being that even though that's like this really very peak scene in the movie, it's sort of you know it's a really great uh, dramatic action moment with with the Black Widow uh, dropping down and on, on her motorcycle. That little boys won't buy the action figures and little girls don't play with action figures. So there are now entire merch watch. Um, <laughs> websites. There's a Tumblr called, I think, but not the Black Widow, uh, because the Black Widow also is the only Avenger who's not going to get her own solo <laughs> You got to give a call out to Mark Ruffalo, who plays uh, the Incredible Hulk, and he even said he was like, "I'm disappointed as you know, an actor in the film who has a daughter yeah. that that her voice wasn't represented in the yeah. toys. She you, plays with I them. I think that this problem has been going on for years, though. I remember when I was a kid and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out. Mm. Like, my brother, like, we had all the turtle action figures. We had the sewer. And I wanted an April O'Neil. She was so hard to find. I remember, like, my mom driving me to, like, Toys R Us, like, across Massachusetts to try to find April O'Neil. Because they must have made, like, one of those for every, you know, 700 Michelangelo's they made. Well, I can tell (laughs) you you the meeting where they do the the (laughs) merchandise. I can tell you who was sitting at the table, you know. (laughs) It's like these are people who are really calculating what they see as the dollars. And they see that, okay, well, maybe male action figures, male uh, people buying for boys spend more money on on these action figures and so therefore they're going to do that. And they decided, I mean, the, the Walmart people at the table are who decide what happens with that, not the actors or the producers or the artists or the writers or the people who, you know, are outraged at the, the image of the story being being changed. But it seems extraordinary to me that what are they doing to their fans in the sense that, you know, people who've seen the movie and watched the movie and then the, I mean, aren't people going to see that this is oh, not... People are seeing. We're going to have to take a break here. I should say, being pulled off the shelves, even as we speak, are the Josh Duggar action figures. <laughs> the action figures that will not be popular anymore. All right, we're going to take a break. I had to go see the Mad Max movie twice. I missed the Cheryl Sandberg cameo the first time. Lean in, baby. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Jules Lefevre, Alex Dubin, Deborah Timms, and Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Tina Turner. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making waterless, flourless, gasoline-flavored chocolate cake, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Enjoy your holiday weekend. We'll be back Tuesday with an in-depth interview with Hartford stage director Darko Treznik. And now, back to Colin. And it's time for endorsements. Um, actually, my endorsement is going to have something to do with that, but we'll come to that in just a second. So, Carolyn, what would you like to endorse? Um, I will endorse the uh, CT Improv Stand-Up Spectacular, which is tomorrow night at uh, the Carriage House, and I am doing a set at that. So everyone should come, and it'll be fun. Well, could we also, while we're doing this, endorse the fact that the CT Improv Kickstarter ends on Tuesday, uh, and that's to go there. Oh, you're yeah. going to go there. Oh, you then go there. No, you go ahead. You're reading it, so you'll probably <laughs> get all that information out a lot clearer. Well, actually, I just sort of read everything that I just had. But anyway, <laughs> um, if you go if you go to ctimprov.com/theater, well, I mean, the notion of this is to actually have a comedy theater in Hartford, an actual dedicated CT Improv comedy theater. And really, when I make a mental list of like the ten things that I think could break in the right way for Hartford, you know, in the next three or four 
four years, that's on that list. I think yeah. that would be really kind of an amazing thing. So yeah. uh, go, go find their Kickstarter or just go on their website and it'll show you how to help them build their theater. All right. Was that it? That you know, was you know, it. That was your full endorsement. All right. Here we go. Um, I have uh, a, couple, a couple of movie things. Um, the Tales of Hoffman is showing at Cine Studio next week, which is an amazing uh, Technicolor restoration. Um, and also May 29th through June 6th, the uh, uh, 28th LGBT uh, Film Festival at Sony Studio with an incredible array of films. They're really good. Um, if you go on the website for outfilmct.org, you can find out all about them. And also our friends are going on the Tour de Cure which is the diabetes ride um, at June 14th at Durham Fairgrounds. You can go on uh, diabetes.org to find out about it. Um, it's a really great event and for a great cause, the Tour de Cure on June 14th. All right. Tanisha. Yes. So I'm going to continue with my sort of family fun endorsements. That's going to be my theme for the summer. And uh, so the first one is – oh, oh my, my brain went blank. Um, the Heirloom Festival in Wethersfield. We'll start out there. That's on Sunday from 10 to 5. It seems like – a and the weather's going to be gorgeous, so come check that out. Heirloom seeds, if you're into that, you want to make <laughs> your own heirloom tomatoes, go check that out. And um, uh, New York Pickle Deli. Mm. Great place in Rocky Hill on mm. Shunpike Road. Awesome, awesome. So adorable. It's been around for 30 years. It's family owned. Went there this morning with my family and it was awesome. All right. And once you get those heirloom seeds, of course, you have to race with them across the desert uh, <laughs> to find some place that they can grow. Um, all right. So um, as the as Kion was just mentioning, on Tuesday, we're going to run an interview with Darko Trezhnik. Um And I am going to, in that interview, and I know this because I've already done it, taped it, uh, gush uh, quite a bit about uh, Kiss Me Kate, and I will gush right now, too, uh, at the Harvard Stage Company. I mean, first of all, I really do feel, I mean, I'm kind of a groupie, you know. I mean, I really do feel like we're very lucky to have this guy uh, here working and and – and I hope that that continues. But uh, while we've got him here anyway, this is a kind of a really remarkable staging of Kiss Me, Kate. And it's a musical whose powers and whose great songs I kind of forgotten. I, I went in there sort of thinking, well, there, there aren't any really, you know, sing around the piano songs or anything like that. But I just was – and then I didn't look at the programs because I wanted to be surprised as each song came up. Really just amazing songs. And then just his – thinking out of this thing. I mean, they're just, I just have never gone to anything that he's directed where I haven't thought, wow, you know, he just sort of, you know, in terms of getting sort of a visual idea up there on stage, uh, it, it just was um, absolutely, it is absolutely amazing. It only runs through, I think, June 14th. You don't have a lot of time. Uh, I, I think there really almost is no excuse for any empty seats while it is running here. Um, I, I've got a couple of extra seconds here, so I will mention um, also the, I've mentioned this before, but um, you know, a really terrific series came to its season finale this week. I'm not talking about Mad Men. I'm talking about it or last week. I'm talking about American Crime. American Crime is a really good series, which has amazing performances. And I think you could probably binge watch it somehow now, either on demand or there must be some way to do it. And if if not, wait until there is. But um, it really is a remarkable series about race and criminal justice. And it has some of the most incredible performances by Felicity Huffman, uh, by by Timothy Hutton, uh, but also by a whole series of actors that you've never hmm? Regina, oh, Regina King. King. She's so I love Regina King. Anyway, she's so great in it. I just found out that one the guy who plays the Mexican kind of sort of thug uh, was in fact recruited uh, uh, by one of those programs that tries to sort of uh, repurpose or divert oh. gang members. Uh, and he's actually been in a lot of movies and done a lot of uh, TV, but he sort of comes out of that background. He wears his uh, his gang qualities, uh, quite honestly. So really, I mean, go back and, and it's a really – it's the series ending is kind of interesting. It's a little bit – 
um, like all series endings, I guess these days, a little bit inconclusive intentionally, but uh, also really, really interesting. So I do, I do recommend that too. All right. And uh, yeah, don't forget that CT Kickstarter program. It'd be so great to have a comedy uh, theater here. All right. We're going to uh, say goodbye. We're going to thank uh, Tanisha Dugan and James Hanley and Carolyn Payne. We'll be back on Tuesday. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. The one thing I learned from watching Mad Max was to definitely always carry heavy-duty chain cutters in my car. Oh, and a double-neck electric guitar. And war paint. And maybe some Kleenex.